Our sermon this morning is on 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Uh, You can find 2 Kings chapter 18 on page 302 in the Pew Bible. So grab one of those from the the chair uh, in front of you. And we're going to cover the life and reign of King Hezekiah. Last week uh, in chapters 11 through 17, we saw a handful of different kings of Israel um, in Judah, but mostly Israel, and then we saw the fall of Israel uh, to Assyria. They, they captured the king and put him in prison and besieged the city for, um, for three years, took all of the Israelites uh, off into exile, took a bunch of Gentiles and foreigners from other nations in the empire and brought them and resettled them into the land of Israel, and that's where we, where we left off. So, so Israel uh, has, has fallen, Judah still remains in the southern kind of region of the, uh, of the nation of, of Israel. What was originally one unified nation of Israel, the northern region of Israel or Samaria has been taken. The southern region of Judah is still there. When we left off, uh, the last king that we saw in Judah, the southern region, was uh, King Ahaz in 2 Kings chapter 16. And Ahaz was a bad king. Uh, he died and his throne was turned over to his son, Hezekiah, and that's who we are going to uh, dwell on today, is the life and reign of Hezekiah. Interesting about Hezekiah is this is not the only place that we see uh, his life and his reign. We also see it in the book of uh, Second Chronicles. Almost every king that we read about in First uh, and Second Kings, the, that, that person's life and reign is also recorded in uh, the books of First and Second Chronicles. So you can find it in Second Kings twenty-nine through thirty-two. Uh, nothing, nothing super, you know, out of the ordinary there in terms of the other kings. But what's interesting about Hezekiah is that he there's a third account of his reign in your Bible, and it's in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is 66 chapters, almost all of which are prophecy. So, you know, uh, sermons, essentially, like messages that Isaiah is, is preaching, pub, public teaching, warning of judgment, calling the nation to repentance, words of assurance about God's mercy. That's the majority of the book of Isaiah. But there's one kind of interlude right in the middle, Isaiah chapters 36 to 39, that recounts and tell the story of Hezekiah. And it's pretty much the exact same uh, story that we, uh, that we read here. So maybe for, if, you're, if, you're looking for, if you're looking for some homework to do this week, you can read Isaiah 36 to 39, and you can compare and contrast it with 2 Kings 18 to 20, and kind of uh, see, see the, the life and the reign of Hezekiah in two different, uh, different accounts there. So Hezekiah today... Uh, next week, we're going to look at the life and reign of King Josiah. And then the, and then the following week, we're going to wrap up the book, Lord willing, uh, and look at the fall of Judah uh, to the, the Babylonians. And so that's kind of our forecast for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to walk through 2 Kings 18, 19, and 20 together. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning humbly, right, uh, uh, you know, casting aside any semblance of or, or delusions of self, um, you know, righteousness or self-assuredness, and we come humbly asking you to speak to us, help us to listen to your word and hear your word and meditate on your word and be encouraged by your word for the sake of, of, of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Okay, chapter 18, verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, the king of Elah, uh, uh, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. So Hezekiah was a good king, which is kind of a breath of fresh air. Because most of the kings that we've been seeing and reading about, it says the opposite. So they were bad kings. They, they did not walk in the, the, you know, the ways of, of David, their, their, their father. So Hezekiah is a good king. There have been a couple uh, that, that say that, that these kings were a good king and walked uh, in the footsteps of their father, David. But what Hezekiah does that very few before him have done, most of them, if it says that they were a good king, it also says, but they left the high places up in and around the, the nation of, of Israel. They were these, these unauthorized altars outside of the temple of God. God kind of plants his people, and he says, I want you to build a temple, and that's where I want you to worship me. Offer sacrifices there in the temple. Worship God there in the temple. The temple is kind of the, the, the place where God dwells, where God's presence is, is thought to, to dwell. So don't worship me on your terms, in ways that have not been authorized out everywhere in the nation, come to the temple and worship me there. Well, there's all these high places that were just altars to do explicitly that. And so most of the kings, that even the ones who didn't worship idols, most of them still uh, left those high places up. Uh, Hezekiah was one of the few that not only does he not worship idols, but verse 4, he removes the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah, that's an idol. And he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings on it. So he's purging all of the worship of idols from the land. In verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So he's a good king. He's like top gun, right? Like he's like very, you know, the Mount Rushmore of kings, probably a close second to David himself, is Hezekiah. Verse 6, For he held fast to the Lord... He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Remember, uh, Assyria had just defeated and conquered the nation of Israel. We're going to read that in the coming verses. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from the watchtower to the fortified city. In verse 9, we're going to see a summary of chapter 17. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. We saw that last week. And at the end of the three years, he took it. And in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and Habor and the river of Gozan and the cities of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. So Israel's gone. Hezekiah is hunkering down in Judah, watching Israel taken into exile. Verse 13, in the 14th year of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So now they're coming to attack Judah after, after Israel. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. I'll give you tribute, right? Whatever you want, I'll pay it. You're big. I'm small. You're strong. I'm weak. Just don't hurt me. 
And the king of Assyria required that Hezekiah give, uh, from Judah uh, give 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it all to the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah giving him everything that he has, hoping to avoid the same fate that he just saw Israel experience, which was deportation and resettlement of their land. Verse 17, And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshaka, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway, to the washer's field. So we've got these messengers from Assyria there to give a message to Hezekiah and to Judah on behalf of the king of Assyria. And when they called out for the king, there came out to Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asap, the recorder. So Hezekiah sends his messengers out to go meet the messengers from the king of, of Assyria, and they're going to kind of talk and kind of broker a deal. And here's what the messengers from uh, the, uh, the king of Assyria say in verse 19. Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are a strategy and power for war? Meaning, uh, don't, like, don't think that you can talk your way out of this. Don't think that you can pay us off. We're coming. We are going to destroy Judah. Right? If a, a fight is imminent. In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Verse 21, behold, you are now trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him, right? Egypt can't save you. Don't go to them looking for help because you won't find it there. Verse 22, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah just removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before his altar in Jerusalem? He says, not only can Egypt not save you from the coming wrath of Assyria, but your God can't save you from the coming wrath of Assyria, right? And besides, you obviously aren't even that committed to your God because Hezekiah just tore down all of the altars to your God all over your country. Now, in reality, God wanted him to do that. That was him obeying God, right? In reality, God uh, did not want these unauthorized altars, right? So the, 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 the predominant idea in the ancient world is, you know, if, if some worship is good, then more is better. So why confine the worship of your God or gods, little g-o-d-s? Why confine the worship of them to one small little temple? Just, Build up as many altars and many temples as you can and worship your gods more and more. That was what everyone else thought. But when God planted Israel, he said, I'm not like the other gods. I don't particularly care. You know, I don't want to everyone, you know, it's, I'm not really worried about that. I want a temple. I want to dwell there. I want my people to worship me there in the way that I have authorized, the way that I have prescribed. And so Hezekiah didn't tear down the altars because he was ashamed of God, like the king of Assyria is accusing him of. Hezekiah tore down the altars because he was obeying God. But nevertheless, this messenger from, from Assyria is, is mocking uh, Hezekiah, mocking Judah, mocking God. And he says in verse 23, Come now, uh, make a wager with my master, with the king of Assyria. 
I'll give you 2,000 horses if you are able to put your, to, if you were able on your part to set riders on them. You ever, you know, played a game of, play a game of horse with someone in basketball and say, I'll spot you three letters or, you know, one-on-one. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll play to 21, but I'll, you start at 10, I'll start at zero. That's right. We'll give you horses to fight against us with. We have more horses than you have humans. You can't even put, you have enough people to put on the horses that we could, could give to you. Verse 24, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Right? The least of my master's servants. He's saying, the strongest man that you have in the entire nation of Judah, the best warrior, right? The Green Beret, the, the you know, SEAL Team 6, the best warrior you have can't even, can't even hold his own against the weakest loser of a warrior in our empire, right? The, the least of my master's servants can, can destroy anyone that you can bring up against us. Verse 25, moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? It was the Lord who said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So he's saying, you, Clint, you worship your God. You think your God's going to save you from me? Your God works for me. You, you're, like Your God is the one who told me to come here and, and do this. Your God is on my side, not on, not on your side. Right? This guy's like, laying it on as thick as he can. This is like, you know, you ever talk to like a pushy salesman who has, you know, a bajillion arguments and every, you know, thing that you, you know, say as to why you're not going to buy his thing, he's got another argument coming behind it. He's got a response coming. That's what he, this guy has, you know, he has a million reasons why you need to stand down. You need to surrender. You need to stop trying to fight against the king of Assyria. You need to just come and, and you know, Resistance is futile. You should just join us while you still have the chance. Verse 26, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Hey, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. They're saying, We are ambassadors, diplomats. We are trained in the international languages so we can speak with you, but none of our citizens are. So, so talk to us in that. You're scaring, our, you're scaring our people, right? Like You're saying all of these mean things that are striking fear into the hearts of our people. Not cool, man. Just speak to us in a language that they... Be quiet and speak to us in a language that we can understand that not them, so that way you're not giving all of our citizens a, a heart attack. Verse 29. But the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, but not to the men on the wall who are doomed to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? Which is gross. He says, he says I'm not going to speak quietly to you. Like, this message is just as much for them as it is for you, right? They're the ones who are going to suffer. If you, if Hezekiah and you officials that are kind of in his inner circle, if you guys decide, apart from the input of the people, to come to war against, against Assyria, and we kill you, and we en- enslave them, and, 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 you know, haul them off into captivity, they're going to be the ones who are suffering. They're going to be the ones who are, you know, treated terribly. They're going to be the ones who are scrounging for food and water so that they don't die of starvation and thirst. So they deserve to hear this as much as anyone else does. So, so basically the guys from Israel say, keep it down. You're scaring our people. And the guys from Assyria say, we're not going to keep it down. We're going to talk even louder. Verse 28. 
Then the Rabshakeh stood and called in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. He says, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in your Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us and the city will not be given to the hand of Assyria. You can't win. Your God is weak. We are strong. We're going to kill you. You have one chance right now to surrender before the fight starts. Verse 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me now while you can. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you from his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land that's like your land, a land of grain and wine and bread and vineyards and olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. Right? Don't fight a losing battle. Don't go down with a sinking ship. Fold the hand now while you can and come enjoy the good life. The life that your God promised you that he has failed to deliver you. The life that Hezekiah was supposed to secure for you that he failed to do. I can give you that. I'm the only one that can. Your God can't and your king can't. So you better, you better defect now while there is an opportunity to do so. And do not listen to the, the king of Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the other gods of the other nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where were the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of all the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? We've, we have a... We're undefeated. We've never, no God of any nation has ever overcome us. We are bigger and stronger than any God you can conjure up or any, you know, uh, defense strategy that that God might give to you. So you might as well, right? We've seen this story before. Kings tell their people, Let's fight. Maybe our gods will deliver us. The priests tell their people, let's stay and fight. Our gods will deliver us. And time and time again, they fail and they die and they should have just quit while they were ahead. Verse 36. But the people were silent and they answered him not a word for the king's command was, do not answer him. And then the, the officials from Judah, Eliakim, the son of Hil- Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Sheb- Shebna and Joah, the recorder, they came to Hezekiah, and they tore their clothes, and they told him the words of the Rabshakeh. So, so they're in mourning, right? They're, they're, they're basically saying, our people are hearing, uh, you know, propaganda that is going to cause their... They're, they're, they're going to start wavering. We're going to lose the support of the people. They're going to want to side with Assyria instead of us. We're concerned. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 19. As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went to the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, Shebna uh, the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. 
It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Right? Isaiah, we've got a problem. Assyria is attacking us. We've got one shot. We've got one hope. Our only hope is that God heard this vagrant, this, you know, this guy who was mocking him and mocking us. Our only hope is that God heard him and that God is upset and that God is going to bring judgment against him. Because one thing we do know is that we cannot win this battle in our own strength. It's, it's impossible. Verse 5. When the servants of the king Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Right? No one comes into my nation, talks to the king that I installed on the throne like that. No one mocks the sovereign God of the universe like these people have. They've, they're going to get what's coming to them. Verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. And now the king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Cush, behold, he has set out to fight against you. So, so the king of Assyria is starting to have his attentions getting a little bit divided. He's, he's got other fires that he starts to need to put out. But uh, in an attempt to multitask, it says he sent messengers again to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. You think you're going to be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Where's the, where are all the kings? Where are all the, the gods? Right? Second message, reiterating the same thing. Right? Your God can't save you. I'm bigger than him, and I'm stronger than him, so surrender now while you can. Look at how Hezekiah responds in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it and he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the, the cherubim, you are God, you alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear and open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and the lands that have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but they were the work of men's hands of wood and stone, and that's why they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, please save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of all the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. This is a big, like, this is a, a big, weighty prayer, right? A prayer that, that begins by recognizing and declaring and acknowledging the, the 
rightness and the legitimacy and the sovereignty and the authority of God. God is glorious, right? No other gods can compete with the one true God. And it's a prayer that asks boldly and asks earnestly for grace and mercy and salvation, right? Please save us from his hand. But the underlying motivation for the request for God to... It's not God save us from the hand of this wicked man because we want it or because we deserve it or because you owe it to us, right? It's God save us from the hand of this wicked king so that everyone all over the earth can know that you are God. The underlying motivation that's kind of informing Hezekiah's prayer is the glory of God, the reputation of God, the fame of God among the people of God and among all the, all the world, right? When you pray, pray like this. Pray, pray earnestly. If you want something, if you need something, God knows that you need it, so you might as well tell it to him anyway. Pray earnestly, right? Like Jesus in the garden, right? Lord, uh, if you are willing, take this cup from me, right? Pray, like, communicate your real, unvarnished, raw desires and requests to God, but then make sure that those requests are informed by and undergirded by the sovereignty and the glory and the grace, right? Like, Jesus, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done, right? Hezekiah is saying, please save us from this wicked king so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God, right? Godly prayer is real and honest and it communicates what we need to God and it's punctuated by and undergirded by just this ruthless trust in the the sovereignty of God and and a care for, a concern for the the glory of God and, and God's glory being proclaim to the to the world. And then look at how Isaiah responds to Hezekiah's prayer or how God responds through Isaiah to Hezekiah's prayer. Isaiah says, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer about Sennacherib, the king of Israel, the king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She uh, is um, is Judah, and you is Assyria. So she despises you, she scorns you, the the virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. The the people of Jerusalem are looking at you, Assyria, with derision and, and contempt. Verse 22, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? You have mocked and raised your voice to the Holy One of Israel. You've mocked the Lord. You, re- you realize what you've done? This is not a good situation for you. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered the farthest lodging place in the most fruitful forest. I dug wells, and I drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Look at everything I've done. You're really impressed with yourself, Assyria. But let me tell you something. Let me, let me give you a little insight into what has happened and why. Verse 25. 
Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from the days of old. What I now bring to pass that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of their strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on housetops blighted before it is grown. He says, do you think that you've had all of this military victory because you're big and you're strong and you're impressive? Give me a break. You're a joke. The only reason you have ever had any semblance of any victory at all is because I willed for it to happen. The sovereign God of the universe caused it to happen. You should be less impressed with yourself and far more impressed with God. Far more afraid, frankly. Far more reverent, frankly, Afraid of God, reverent toward God. Verse 27. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. So because of that, I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth and I will turn you back the way by which you came. So, so two things that mark Assyria is one, raging against God, active rebellion, and two, complacency toward God, passive indifference. He says, I've seen this active rebellion, this passive indifference, and because of it, I'm going to put a hook in your nose. This was a common strategy, a military strategy for Assyria. They would con- we saw them. They conquered uh, the nation of Israel, and they deported them to other le- regions in the land, and they resettled the land with other people from elsewhere in the empire. The way that they would get people to resettle is they would put a hook in your nose or through your lip and attach it to a chain or a rope, and they would pull you know, these captive people, these slaves, these captive people hundreds of miles, you know, making them walk without food or water or sleep. And if you fall asleep or if you pass out, then you, you know, this hook would, would, you know, injure, would mutilate your face. It was violent and barbaric and demeaning. And Assyria didn't care about it at all because in their mind, it was effective. They didn't want to corral all of these, you know, deport, deportees that they're taking off into slavery. They didn't want to have to chase them if they ran off. So they just put a hook through their nose or a hook through their mouth and, and carry them kind of on the back of a chariot or they'd kind of, you know, carry with their, with their arm. And God says, I'm going to do to you the same thing that you have done to all of the people that you have conquered. I'm going to forcibly remove... You forcibly removed all of these nations from where they were, including Israel. I'm going to forcibly remove you from the nation of Judah as punishment for your arrogance and your pride. And this shall be a sign for you, Hezekiah. This shall be a sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself, and in the second year, what springs of the same. But in the third year, you will sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall grow a remnant, and out of, the Mount, out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this, right? No matter what happens to the people of God in the Old Covenant, there's always a remnant. There's always a people that God is working in and working within and, and keeping and saving, right? People that have not bowed their knee to, to Baal, right? That God is keeping, and that is ultimately the remnant from which the Messiah is going to come and accomplish the salvation of his people. Judgment for Assyria because of their arrogance and pride and wickedness. Salvation for Judah because of their trust in the sovereignty and the mercy of God. 
Verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord the king, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege or mound around it. By the way he came, he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. I'm going to save you from the Assyrians. Two reasons. One, for my sake, because my name matters. Uh, I am the sovereign king of the universe. I am glorious and I do not want my name and my reputation besmirched by some insignificant, small little king of some other empire. One, my own sake. And two, for the sake of my servant David, because I promised David. I made promises to him and I am not going to renege on those promises. I keep my promises. Verse 35, and that same night, this is how long it takes God's word to be fulfilled. That same night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech, and Sharazer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. That's what happens when you square up, when you go head to head against God. He puts you in your place. You run away, terrified, and then you die. I know how you've been raging against me. I know your complacency and your indifference to my glory. I'm going to send you back the way you came, and ultimately you will be put to death. Friends, of all the things that you could do with your life, of all the things that you could do during the course of your life. The one thing that you don't want to do is stand face to face with the God who created you and speak to him like and treat him like the king of Assyria spoke to and treated God. That's a battle you cannot win. The posture to take before God is kneeling in humility, not standing tall in pride and arrogance. Everything that you have, you have because God gave it to you. The only reason you still have it is because God is allowing you to keep it. And like Assyria, we can see that God can and does take it away. God can and does humble people when they are prideful before him. So Syria is gone ish. Uh, the king is dead. Now we're going to kind of zoom back in in, verse, or in chapter 20 on Hezekiah and the remainder of his life. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order because you're going to die. You are not going to recover. This is serious. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And he wept bitterly. 
Compare and contrast Hezekiah's prayer here in chapter 20, verse 3, with back in chapter 19, verses 15 to 19. Does the tone feel a little different? Right? How has Hezekiah's prayer life evolved or uh, devolved? How has the theology that, that undergirds it, you know, has it started to decay a little, right? Before it was, God, you're the king, you are sovereign. God, please save me, not for my sake, but for your sake. Save me because of the promises that you have made. Save me so that everyone will know that you are God and you are glorious and you are sovereign. Now it's, I'm sick, I want to get better. Heal me because of how good I am. Heal me because of how I've walked before you and I've done what is right. Hezekiah was a good king. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah was arguably one of the best kings that there was in the entire history of Judah. But the further he goes along and the closer he gets to the end of his life, he does start to flirt with selfishness and self-centeredness and and self-focused. He's he's self-reliant. Verse 4. And before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him and said, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the, house, out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So I'm going to heal you. Right? You're not going to die from this uh, sickness. You're going to live for years and years. I'm going to give you security right, from, from the nation of Assyria. Verse 7, Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs and lay, let them take it and lay it on the boil that he may recover. It's kind of some weird primitive medicine, but that's, you know, figs they thought had medicinal um, qualities to them. So they kind of make an ointment or some sort of like thing out of it. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall then be the sign that the Lord will heal me? And how shall I go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign from the Lord that the Lord will do what he has promised. Would you like for the shadow to go forward ten steps or back ten steps? Right? Would you like for the, for the sun to... You, would you like for the shadow, if the sun's here and kind of casting a shadow of the, the temple uh, onto the steps of the temple... Would you like for me to make the sun immediately go set more quickly so that the shadow goes ten steps further? Or would you like for me to take the sun reverse course and bring it up higher in the sky so that the shadow, so that there's, there's ten steps less, right? That there's ten steps worth of sunlight more. Both of which are a miracle. Both of which presumably involve God, like, either rotating the earth faster than it normally would or or stopping it and rotating it backwards uh, a, a little bit. Kind of a, a reminiscent of uh, Joshua chapter 10, where there's a fight going on and God causes the sun to stand still in the sky for uh, almost an extra whole day, like uh, 20, 10, 20, I don't know, a, a, almost 24 hours, the sun just kind of sits still in the sky because the, the people of God need that much time to kill all of the, the people that they're fighting against. And so uh, multiple times in Scripture we see God sovereignly, supernaturally, miraculously doing these things that we can't quite 
uh, comprehend or can't quite understand how uh, they, they could happen, but God does it because he is sovereign and because he is the, the, the king. Verse 12, At that time, Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with the letters, uh, with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. So Hezekiah has now been healed, and he's gotten this sign uh, to, to say that he's going to be healed. The sun kind of moves, moves in the sky in this unnatural, supernatural way. And now, not Assyria, because they're kind of out of the picture now, but now Babylon sends these people and say, hey, give them, send them some letters, send them some gifts. Let's kind of, let's kind of broker a little, a little relationship with Judah. And Hezekiah welcomes them, and he showed them all of the treasure in his house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his armory and all that was found in his storehouses. And there was nothing in his house in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Come on in. Check out all of my stuff. Look how rich I am. Look at the temple that we have. Pretty impressive, right? Look look how luxuriously I live. It's probably not wise, right? If someone that you think, right, if someone that's morally suspect like the people from Babylon were, come over to your house, don't show them your valuables and where they are and the key, the, the code to the safe, right? It's not, they're probably going to come back and they're probably going to take it. So Isaiah tells him in verse 14, then the prophet Isaiah came to King Hezekiah and said, hey, what do the men say? Where do they come from? And he said, they've come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And he said, they've seen everything that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons, too, who will come from you, who, whom you will father, will be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah says, Hezekiah, you're a moron. That was stupid. That was a dumb thing to do. You have told them where all of the valuables are and you've invited them to come back and take them from you and it's going to happen not just because you're stupid and because they're some criminal mastermind but because you're not just stupid but you're proud and you're self-exalting you're so right you are so excited about how rich you are and the life of luxury that you live and you want everyone to be impressed with how great you are that's why you show them all of your stuff and as judgment for your pride and folly the lord is going to have Babylon come back and take all of your stuff and take the people from your nation and take your own children and mutilate them and put them uh, into slave slave servit- servitude in the, the house of their royal courts. And if you need proof that Hezekiah has, you know, that he's kind of starting to slip towards the end of his life, he's becoming more selfish and more foolish Look how he responds, right? He's just been told, the nation that you have been tasked with shepherding and looking after is going to be destroyed, right? And all of your stuff is going to be taken away. And your own children are going to be kidnapped, and they're going to be, you know, mutilated, and they're going to be put into forced labor. And what does he respond? Hey, the word that you have spoken, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? if there will at least be peace and security in my days. Your country is going to be invaded. 
Your people are going to be taken into captivity. Your children are going to be taken into captivity. Fine. No skin off my back. It's them, not me. At least I'm going to be comfortable for the rest of my days. Hezekiah is a good king. He's a godly king. But even a good and godly king can start to slip toward selfishness, self-centeredness, which serves as a warning for us. Even the most godly of people can fall prey to pride and selfishness and self-centeredness. And if we're not careful, if we don't fight against it, we can fall prey to it as well. 1 Timothy 4, watch your doctrine and your life closely and persevere in them. 1 Corinthians 10, if you think you're standing firm, be careful so that you do not fall. Genesis 4, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to consume you and destroy you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. You must kill and destroy it. The love of self, right, being constantly focused on one's self and constantly caring only about one's self is subtle and it is dangerous. And even the most godly people can fall prey to it, like Hezekiah did toward the end of his life. He was a godly man and a godly king, and he fell prey to sin and folly. Verse 20. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all of his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought the water into the city are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. That's the life and reign of Hezekiah. He's attacked by Assyria, prays to God humbly, trustingly, and he's delivered. He gets sick and he prays to God and he's healed. But even after all of that, he still falls prey to sin and folly and pride and selfishness and he invites judgment on his nation and his family. And that's really the big takeaway. Worship the Lord, pray to the Lord, be concerned with the glory of the Lord, call out to the Lord for mercy, trust in the Lord to save you from your sin and your suffering and the the persecution that's coming from the enemies of God. Do all of that just like Hezekiah did, and God's faithful, he loves to save his people just like he did with Hezekiah. Right? He saved him from persecution at the hand of Assyria. He saved him from death and deadly disease. So do all of that, absolutely. But as you do, still be careful and be diligent to repent of pride and self-centeredness because these things invite the judgment of God. The king of Assyria was pride, was, was proud and arrogant. He laughed at God. He mocked God. He thought that he was bigger and stronger than God, right up until the moment when God destroyed him and killed him. Hezekiah, toward the end of his life, he got a little too wrapped up in himself, his own righteousness, his own good deeds, his own possessions, his own glory, and God brought judgment on his family and on his nation because of it. If you stand before God with a posture of pride, 
thinking highly of yourself, trusting in yourself, caring only about yourself, that invites the judgment of God. God loves to humble those who exalt themselves, right? God brings judgment and punishment against those who are proud and arrogant, and God brings salvation and mercy to those who are humble and who trust in him. So as you walk through life, you are going to experience persecution like Hezekiah did. You're going to experience suffering and ailments like Hezekiah did. You're likely to make mistakes and fall prey to sin and pride and and folly like Hezekiah did. But the, the, the good news is that God is faithful even in the midst of, of that. God draws near to his people even in the midst of, of that. He saves them from their sin. He delivers them from their trouble. He provides for them everything that they need. Jesus has come to us. Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. Jesus has borne the wrath of God that was meant for us. Jesus was raised from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, if you humble yourself, and turn from your sin and trust in him, there is mercy and grace and salvation offered freely to you in the the gospel. There is judgment and punishment for those who stand before God with a prideful, haughty spirit, who don't respect God, don't revere God, don't fear God, but there is grace and mercy and salvation for those who come empty-handed to God through Christ with humble hearts and who trust in him to save them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge and we thank you for your sovereignty over human history. You are firmly in control of every single king, of every single nation. You're in control of the election that's going to happen in 48 hours, right? No one came to the throne of Israel apart from your will. No one came to the throne of Judah apart from your will. Every single thing that ever happened from from Saul and David all the way through to the Babylonian captivity that we're going to see in the coming weeks. It was all done according to your will, on purpose, to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah, to come and save your people from their sins. And so, Lord, we look to you. Jesus, we look to you. We trust in you. We hold fast to you because you are our only hope. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.